Welcome to the Jesus Said Love podcast. This is a space where we talk about what it means to awaken hope and empower change. Listen, for over a decade, Em and I have been fostering relationships with men and women who've been impacted by the commercial sex industry. And it's through those relationships that Jesus Said Love was born. We figured it was time to talk about what this ministry has taught us and is still teaching us along the way. I promise it's going to be a place of conversation and story. And we hope you learn something new. Maybe you see something in a new way. Fun fact, you're going to hear music because Brett and I are musicians. Yep. We can't just talk. Nope. we got to sing and play too. We do. Here's the deal, guys. Our hope is that as you hear these stories, that you'll tap into your own story and that you'll be encouraged to live and love well like Jesus. Hey, Em. Hi, Brett. It's Saturday. It is Saturday. And it's been a good one, right? So we woke up early this morning mm-hmm. because we had soccer game and it was cold outside. And after the soccer game, <laughs> we were headed to the volleyball game and you said, let's go get tacos because that's what we do in Texas on Saturday mornings we is we do. go and get tacos in our we normal do. place we couldn't get into. So we went to this other place and we ordered just four simple tacos. Just simple. Bacon, simple egg, tacos. and cheese. And it... <laughs> Do you want to tell us what happened? Well, it was just a, it was the complicated order, apparently. It was just, we were apparently complicated. I don't know if there was a miscommunication, but then the, um, the taco, the cook and the waiter, it's, it's one of the, it's a gas station. Let's just be real. This is a gas station where we go get tacos. Okay. So, you know, he's, he's also the cook he's also the server and he starts playing kind of musical chairs with our tacos and doesn't remember which ones which and where I referenced the it to goes. the old kid game <laughs> called memory and I'm telling you as an Enneagram 8 I almost lost my ever loving mind on this poor soul <laughs> And I, I just, just had to I just had to breathe in the moment because he kept switching and does this one did. go with this one and this one go with that like just stop moving the tacos just put the damn cheese on the taco and let us go to the volleyball game so we get in the car and we laugh harder than we've laughed all month we because we couldn't just couldn't understand what happened and then I start driving to the wrong city to go you to did watch the you drove game. to the wrong school um, and let's not forget before we got the tacos we couldn't find our son's jersey for the soccer game so it really was that. <laughs> kind of morning. He had a borrowed jersey and he had borrowed shin guards on. We're just yeah, we're just we're, winning at life. We're setting <laughs> we're setting things up just to be adaptive and flexible. It's a real test of of the Holy Spirit. But that brings us to lives. this moment which is going to redeem everything of our Saturday. Oh, well, I'm so excited to be here. I think that um you know, we are tackling in this series the topic of abuse, which is a very hard conversation. It's a very nuanced conversation. It's a very, um, for some of us who've never really learned for some of our listeners who, I mean, maybe they don't go to therapy, maybe they're not doing, um, work and maybe, you know, they're not in the deep end, like we are in our work. Um, and so this may be very new for some of our listeners and, what I want to say to you, if you're listening, and this this feels like this felt like a hard click, even to click on um, on the podcast. I want to say, bless you, and thank you, and wow, what a brave choice to even listen to this conversation. And I think what they're going to find is hope. I think hope will be awakened because even though this is hard. It's also, you're going to hear hope in this. Um, 
So today we are joined on the podcast by really mentors for our lives, Brett, from afar. Um, It's only been in recent years that we've actually been able to meet and I've been able to partake in the work one-to-one with the Allender Center's work. But uh, we have on the show Dan and Becky Allender. So welcome. We are so thankful you're here. Welcome. We are delighted, and uh, I, my breakfast was oatmeal, and <laughs> I don't think you actually ate breakfast. No, I don't no. think I did. Yeah, and Wait, I, Dan, you didn't, you didn't make pancakes? No, not today. That That's tomorrow just, morning. Oh, That's tomorrow. tomorrow. But, but I did vacuum spiders. Uh, oh. We are in the oh. Northwest, Pacific Northwest, infestated. Oh. So I, as you were going to wrong cities, Jersey yeah. lost... <laughs> I, I was just sucking down spiders. <laughs> what an image. <laughs> what an image. Yeah. We have roaches here in Texas, so oh, I, I think I might take spiders. Any day. I, I've, I've actually seen them. They're, they're almost the size of our horses here in the Pacific Northwest. <laughs> That's great. Well, Dan and Becky are co-founders of the Allender Center. Is that right? You, mm-hmm. you founded the Allender Center together, and um, over 30 years ago, I believe it is has been now, um, Dan is a therapist. He's been working for 30-plus years in the issues of sexual trauma, of intimacy, of spiritual abuse. Um, if you listen to podcasts, you definitely want to find the Allender Center podcast. Oh gosh, yes. You will also hear Becky on there. Becky, I mean, Dan has written multiple books. Becky's also written a book um, called Hidden in Plain Sight, and it's about uh, one woman's journey of finding her voice and her calling, and um, it's a beautiful look at the very micro-aggression and ways that that this the intricacies of abuse and trauma um, really stifle our voices, women. I have to um, say this. I have to say this before we go any further. Dan, you wrote a book. You and your friend wrote a book called Intimate Allies. And Emily and I, when we were babies, babies engaged. That was part of our premarital counseling. Wow. And I will never forget. I'm, we're almost twenty one years married in January. Um, when you said we are image bearers of God, that phrase has revolutionized the way, like you said, how can you fight with someone when you're looking at the very image of God? So Fran, thank you for that. All those years ago, you transformed this 24 year old who's now 44. So thank you. Thank you. uh, Again, part of the complication that we'll step into is uh, you know, abuse for both of us yeah. uh, has at times made the engagement with the image of God and the other not so compelling. Uh, so the the hardships of facing heartache uh, also open the door to the wonder of what it means to be forgiven. So I'm, mm-hmm. I'm so grateful that's been part of your world. Yeah, it really set the stage, I think, for our for our marriage. And it was the first time that we were given language of, I remember, used the word um, mar, you know, to mar the image of God and, and to detract from the glory of God and the other. And, and I think it was an awakening for me. I'd actually been given your book in college by a counselor, The Wounded Heart, because of my own story of sexual trauma. And um, I threw it out the window. <laughs> I was like, I just couldn't do it. I I was 19, 20. You know, I I was like, I knew that I was having um, responses, stress responses and trauma responses, but I just wasn't ready to do do the deep work. And um, 
And then as the faithfulness of God goes, here we are serving women who have been <laughs> exploited. I mean, that is the faithfulness of God in my life it has been our teachers, our guides to go, Emily, hey, it's time to get help, you know? And so I'm so grateful for your work that's helped us do that. Um, so let's let's jump in and just can can you guys define and we you can go back and forth and take us into stories and definitions, but you really are both experts and survivors. Um, you're experts because clinically, you know, Dan, this is what you do. Becky, you lead story guides. You're certified in the Allender methodology to take people through trauma and into transformation. Um, but let's define, you know, what is sexual abuse? Many of our listeners have one a very, um, uh, what's the word, a very specific definition of what that is. And anything else beyond that isn't sexual abuse. So could you define that? Yeah. And, and I want to do it so simply, but again, to, to be aware, as you put it so well, both of you, there are a lot of folks who would never at the moment say they had been sexually abused, but just the heartache of hearing the definition opens up a whole set of conversations. So essentially it's this, whenever an adult or a more powerful child or adolescent uses you for their sexual pleasure, that constitutes sexual abuse. Hmm. So that does not imply, uh, uh, well, the worst forms uh, of violation. Uh, you can be severely abused, which might include intercourse, mm -hmm. rape, uh, but also could be light touch of even non-sexual body parts, mm -hmm. but clearly for the arousal of the other. But I also want to underscore, you don't need to be physically touched at all for you to be abused. Likely, your first encounters with pornography was a mm. form of sexual abuse. Mm. Um, as well, the uh, so-called uncle who walks in on you as you're showering, mm. um, and not as an inadvertent mistake. I mean, we've all <laughs> forgotten to knock on doors, but mm -hmm. we're talking about the person who stands, ogles, talks, clearly is taking in your young body. Mm. All of that is to say, whenever you are being violated through a means, physical touch, eyes, verbally, having somebody describe you sexually when you're 12, 14 mm. years of age and they're 16, 18, we're talking about violation of human dignity and honor. And that's what I would call sexual abuse. Mm. Mm. It really does open open our eyes to how the myriad of ways that we have been marred, that we have been harmed, that so many of us have minimized these stories of pain, and yet our bodies, our souls, our spirit, our mind, our very mind, years and years later, can recall in a heartbeat can see in a heartbeat uh, the memory, the smell, the touch, the taste, um, a familiar song, all those ways. Why, why, do, we, why do we minimize? Um, why do we give some forms of abuse more credence? And, and maybe why do we minimize others? Well, in some regard, I think to minimize is a way of not 
being attuned to your own heart. It's a way of being harsh with yourself. And, and so I think we minimize, so we act like this is normal and I, I can do life and that's no big deal. And, you know, that's just a way actually to not being kind to yourself. Hmm. If, if you are attuned and not minimize, well, then it'd be, you know, you'd have a sad heart or you'd hmm. be traumatized or you'd want to go ask for help. And I think... A lot of us just have to buck up and try and be strong from the time we're a little child. Hmm. We don't have, a lot of us didn't have a generation of parents that were attuned to us like our parents of the Great Depression Hmm. because they didn't have attuning when they were children. Mm -hmm. So I think we know so much more now. Yeah. You know, in that definition, Dan, you gave, um, I mean, it's the spectrum. It's from no touch to the greatest of touch. And I think even in my own life, when I think back to my own traumas, I've, I, I have minimized because mine were more on the no touch spectrum. Whereas someone else who, you know, we work with victims who have been raped or gang raped. And I kind of, I, I have struggled with mine was not like Mm. that. And so it's, it's hard it, it's even still hard now, just even as we're having this conversation to go, mm. but they're equal. So help, mm. help me understand, is it even about equal or is it about each individual's response to what was done to them? Well, to put it in a slightly crude way, I'd rather you hit me with a hammer mm. than you run me over with a car. Mm. Um, and so, but, but there's violation, <laughs> And there's pain. Uh, And so, yes, there are gradations. Uh, To be uh, sexually violated, raped uh, by a parent uh, will have clearly more severe consequences than if you had a, you know, a a stranger you didn't know but stayed in your home, walked in the bathroom, had a conversation with you, and clearly was using you. Mm -hmm. So we we can be very realistic to say, yes, there are deeply different levels of harm, but it's almost along this lines. Like, uh, would you be okay if I said, oh, you only have about 1% cancer? (laughs) Um, uh, No. Mm -hmm. I mean, one uh, percent is deadly, mm. um, but if you had fifty percent of your body, it would be even worse. Mm. So let's again come back to the point that anything outside of Eden is clearly going to have damage, and whether you've got a hurt ankle or whether you've got colon cancer, you need care. Mm. You need some level of engagement for your body, your heart, your soul, and that. You know, like the, just the stories of how you first encountered pornography. Absolutely. I, I, I mean, 95% of the men I've worked with have never, never thought about what it was like to be the one introduced to pornography by an older or more powerful child. Mm. Um, and so when you start actually engaging, mm. what seems awful but somewhat innocent, and mm. to go, no. No, there, there is harm. When human dignity is violated, there's something marred. Hmm. Tell us what happens in this trauma response in the brain and in the body. What's going on in a child when their body becomes exploited, commodified, um, is the subject of arousal for someone else? 
yeah, it, let's just say, and may it not be, that all of a sudden you find your house on fire. Mm. Um, you will be in trauma. Um, mm. uh, if, if you were in an auto accident, even if it wasn't severe, you'll be in trauma. So our body is written by God to have a response that allows us a higher probability of survival. So a lot of the trauma response is actually a protective shield, but when it's not addressed, when it's not engaged, it almost inevitably brings about harm. So mm. there are usually three things we talk about. Fragmentation, mm. literally the what what's essentially like the left hemisphere of your brain goes offline. Uh, and so fragmentation is we don't remember. Mm. We don't remember Accurately. We don't remember in terms of a sequence and process. Our, our memory and even our ability to articulate in the moment and later is really shattered. Yeah. Um, and then second, we're numb. Uh, I mean, that's part of the great gift of God in the midst of any level of pain is you are, uh, in one sense, you're taken out of being in your body to mm -hmm. some degree. But when that numbness lasts... Um, and when we find relief through it longer than the moment, then it sets us up for addiction, sets us up for uh, what we'll largely call dissociative patterns that actually can become absolutely debilitating. Mm -hmm. And then finally, we isolate. Mm -hmm. I mean, our, our, we, we experience enough shame in the process that we, in one sense, detach, not just from ourselves, but from others. But if you look at those three words, fragmentation, numbing, and isolation, uh, it's, a, uh, it's a profound level of damage if, as Becky so wisely put it, if, if you don't have someone attuned to you, engaging your story, uh, helping you process that, um, it's going to have significant lasting effect that, thank God, can be addressed, but almost always leave some residual scars. You know, it's so fascinating to, to me to, to intersect these stories of harm with what happened in the garden and, and the hiding. And I want to go to you, Becky, about what it is like um, and to hide what's happening in us when that shame, we know we, we, we just instinctively know something's wrong. I'm, I'm apart from now. And, and then I hide and I withdraw and I isolate. Can you talk to us about your journey with what hiding was like? Well, I had um, a very volatile mother. So at a very, very, very young age, I think probably even when I was in the crib, I learned not to bother her. Hmm. Um, and I think um, that message was so severe that I would either play outside or play in a closet. I, I mean, I didn't even want my own mother, you know, to yeah. be bothered by myself. So um, I think... I think that almost made it harder. I mean, I could have a life outside of our home, but coming back in, it was, um, it took me a long time to ever even confront my mother. I don't think I ever really did. It was mm. just, um, I didn't even realize my hiding was anything unusual. 
Mm. I guess I'll put it that way. And mm. um, yeah, so in that hiding, can I ask you a, a clarifying question? Mm-hmm. In that hiding, um, shame is is so palpable, even if you can't name it. I mean, you're just you're you're ashamed of just who you are. Like your mere existence is just not wanted, not seen, not cared for. And so is that now a setup? Um, yes, I can fall back into those patterns. Is that what you mean currently? As yeah, a setup living? for mm-hmm. a setup for then sexual abuse. Yeah, I I think so because then um yeah, when you're an adolescent and there's a teenage boy that notices you and is attuned to you and you're seen by him, it feels good, right? It's just like, wow, this is really nice. And yeah, exactly. Mm. Can you walk us through, I know one of the most powerful things that <clears throat> really story work and, and the methodology of, of understanding uh, setups and um, the grooming kind of process that takes place sometimes in our family systems that we don't even acknowledge is going on has been really, really helpful for me now in marriage, but also as a parent and looking back at my own story. Um, So in family systems, why is it so important? Um, Why is attunement so important? Well, I think we were made for... um delight and I think we were made to be seen it it hurts not to be seen right you know that's that's like erasing your face erasing yourself so um yeah so I think that that's how God intends it to be um to be delighted in and uh yeah I mean at times I guess I know I was by my parents but there is it was a lot of I don't know. I'm not even sure how to get into all that. Yeah. Yeah. And in, I think attunement, if we can describe some of our listeners might not even know what that word means that, that we've, we've said. Um, but attunement is, is attuning to, is, is tuning in to another person. It's, Mm -hmm. it's seeing the other person. It's like acknowledging pain like when the child is in distress, and I know in our other podcasts, like Brett, we talked about this, even with neglect and yeah. why it's so harmful to the still face experiment, you know, all of these things that attachment goes missing. So I guess because we're wired for connection, then we go looking for it. I mean, is that what we're doing when we don't get it? Uh, that notion of being seen, but also seen with I feel you, I mm. feel and suffer with you, and I delight and, mm. and have joy with you. So that sense of I, I need somebody to hold grief and laughter, you know, that mm. passage in Romans 12 of laugh with those who laugh and weep with those who weep. We need that level of connection, in part because God wired us with this lovely reality called mirror neurons, which uh, essentially even a child who's 
four days old in a nursery will hear another child cry. Mm. That child doesn't know what crying is, doesn't know the concept of self or other, but they tune in. They literally, even if they can't physically move their heads, Mm. they will orient Mm. toward that child. So we've been wired Mm. from birth with a level of empathy, a sense of connectedness through attunement. And Attunement gets used by abusers brilliantly. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I uh, want to talk about that. That's what are these tactics? What well, are the tactics? It, it, you know, when you're in a family uh, like Becky's or mine, where there was either great deprivation or great craziness, yeah. it, it, your heart's so susceptible yeah. to someone giving you even just a tidbit of what you were meant for. And that abuser. Uh, Again, abuse never happens accidentally. Uh, Mm. It was planned. Uh, It was often thought through for lengthy periods of time. So the abusers reading you, Mm. studying you, pursuing you, creating a context in which, and again, because I sucked in spiders today, they they want a web. uh, and, And they want to, in some sense, get you so bound into the web of their connection that, in one sense, you have trusted them. You Mm -hmm. have leaned into them to gain something that you were not finding elsewhere. That's, uh, uh, there's no word for it, but the word diabolic. So no one is accidentally abused. No. I never, you know, 35 years of working with people, you know, it, it, like, yeah, accidents happen. Yeah, but abuse is not an accident. Uh, It is an intended violation. And I think that even as we um, have discussed what verbal abuse is like, even from a caregiver or from a coach or a teacher, or um, it is for the purpose of an intended result, which it could be fall in line, you know, get your shit together. Whatever it is, it is an intentional, uh, they're using it to, to produce you in a way. You, you're being coached. You're being, you know, like pulled along into the web of what they want. And attunement is about seeing the other and saying, what do you want? What do you need? And that, that is what marks what should be the way of Christ in our in the suffering and in the weeping and in the in the joy and all in the delight um that should be and it is what we're made for but so many times when we don't have it we just we keep going back to what we're wired with yeah you know well, yeah. it's such a counterfeit. Um, what the abuser is doing is taking the track of God and then following it long enough to create the counterfeit. Um, mm. And But when you're a four-year-old, eight-year-old, 12-year-old, I don't care, even in your 20s and 30s, most of us do not have the ability to know this is a real dollar bill versus a counterfeit. It just looks real when you are that, well, needy and desperate for care. Yeah. And at some point there becomes these cracks in our adaptation where it no longer kind of 
we start to see it in a true way. And that is the faithfulness. That's the invitation of God in our lives when the cracks start coming up and our bodies begin responding. So Becky, tell us about what what are some of those trauma responses? Like what is our body doing when we've been harmed years and years later? Um, yeah, what are some of those outcomes um, for a trauma survivor? Well, I think there's at times as a trauma survivor to to try and numb over it, just jump mm-hmm. over it, like just forget it, like get on with it. Um, that was back then and toughen up. And mm. I think, um, yeah, I, it was, yeah, I think we get tough mm. and we maybe try and have a, a soft exterior, but be really so tough inside. And actually that's, again, that's being really unkind to yourself inside. Yeah. Like you can't even receive kindness. Um, you know, I, I was on this bus in Paris in high school and it was very crowded and more people came in and there was this priest. And I'm like, wow, I'm glad I'm next to a priest. He started fondling me. I, I had never had anything like that happen before. And after we got off the bus, the our three adult supervisors who were really cool high school teachers, they're like, what happened? What happened? What happened? And I, I, I couldn't say anything. Hmm. I said nothing. I said nothing. And I look back and think, I was so cruel to myself Mm. to not even allow these beautiful hip teachers care for me Mm. because I had so Mm. much shame. Mm. And I think that's what the abuser does. He places the shame on the victim Mm -hmm. and they're they're, They can be locked in a victim jail for a lifetime. Mm. If someone, if if they don't soften or if someone doesn't help them soften. Mm. And so, um, yeah. yeah, I think it's, that I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say I think that's such a, I think that's such a beautiful invitation in the sense that you, when you said I, I was being cruel to myself by not sharing with the teachers what happened, and I, I mean, man, just the thought of, wow, it, by by me not talking, it's not it's not just not producing justice on behalf of this person who just violated me, but I'm I'm being cruel to me. And, and that's not God's best for me. God's best for me is for me to love me and to be kind to me and to bless me. And, and that action would have looked like bringing those teachers into that. What a profound way of thinking. I don't think we're, I don't think we're, I wasn't taught that. But I want to acknowledge that that set up with what Becky shared earlier, which was she was not seen by her mom. Mm. She did not know how to, it was hide. Don't speak up. It causes chaos. It causes disruption. It causes all sorts of hell to break loose in the home. And I'm not down with that. Like, what if this cost me? What if I speak up and I get backhanded, you know, by, it's like your body remembers those times when you did try to speak up and it went terribly wrong. Mm -hmm. And then, so it says, don't do it again. It's such a brilliant point, Emily, because, you know, abuse itself sometimes doesn't seem as severe as the cost of asking for help. And when that's the case, when your heart and body have been told Mm. a thousand times over, you are a problem. 
you are an issue, don't disturb me, mm-hmm. then you've been silenced for, you know, thousands of days. So when this event occurs, uh, you know, you've already developed heartbreakingly the pattern to escape. And yeah. I, I think that's, again, the plan of evil is you, you, you don't engage, but you do take the blame. Mm. And I think that's part of the, the greatest struggle about abuse is that, uh, that our bodies felt something yeah. that it, as violating as it was for Becky in that train, she, her, her young body felt something. Mm-hmm. And even if it was terror mm. and fury, there's still some degree of, I'm being pursued. My mm. body feels alive. And mm. that's the hellish confusion that no four-year-old, eight-year-old, 12-year-old, 20-year-old can metabolize because it's insane. Mm. And yet there is evil's uh, phenomenal plan to create complicity. You yeah. wanted it. You yes. felt good. You didn't speak you could have, you let him, you let her. Yes. And all that uh, is where evil brings, I think, its most uh, aggressive uh, and relentless accusations against mm. you. Oh, I I have chills just as you're going over that because I acknowledge the um, just the shame that even, Becky, you said, I bore, I bore his his pain. I bore his sin. I bore the evil. I, and not in a holy, holy way, in a way that was never intended for you to bear and coached you to continue, reinforce the message, continue to be complicit, continue to not use your voice, continue to lay still, continue to dissociate all of those, um, Gosh, all of those ways are just so tragic to me, to the human soul. You mentioned something, though. I want to, this may be a stretch, but I think there's an interplay here between, or I just want to ask, is there, was there, because this was a priest, a, I mean, that's spiritually abusive. That's now not just sexually abusive, but now spiritual abuse enters into the picture. Wow. Like, what does that do? Were you, did you have faith at that point or did that make it hard to come to faith? Let's just say that that's never been asked. (laughs) I've never really shared that story before other than Dan would know. So I didn't think that, I think I I loved Jesus as, as a really young child. Um, and I've wondered, maybe he just was dressed up like one, you know, you know, I mean, who knows it was, Mm. um, yeah, I, but I remember at first feeling so pressed with all these people in the bus, actually from Mm. Paris, I'm like, Oh, I'm I'm glad I'm next to a priest, you know? (laughs) And then to have that happen. Yeah. But I've never even connected that with spiritual abuse. But it's certainly so true. was. Yeah. yeah. I know. It's like, whoa, you know, there's always more. <laughs> that's a great point. Know. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. we've done a lot of work, but that's a whole, it's a beautiful question and one that you go has to have an effect. Mm-hmm. But, I, you know, as we explore and engage our stories, I, I do think it, it is 
like a question like yours, where the spirit uses to say, time to yeah. time to step through this door into this room. Yeah. Mm. yeah. So thank you. Yeah. <laughs> well, I um I that's encouraging that you guys are still opening more doors. I want to be like that. I want to be still discovering pieces of who I am and what God's doing. But um, is there an interplay a lot of times between the spiritual, the co- or covert or overt spiritual abuse with um, with sexual abuse? Are those two? Uh, do you, do you see that in your work and in your story groups? Kind of the overlap there. Well, a, a lot of folks uh, grew up in churches um, where. Um, the abuse occurred in the context of a Sunday school class or uh, a powerful figure in the church. So absolutely, the answer is absolutely. Uh, in terms of my abuse, it had no spiritual overtones. Mm-hmm. Uh, yet, I don't think any of us can escape at some level, can, and I'll use the phrase, can the universe be trusted? Uh, yeah. Can God be trusted? Yeah. It, it can... Can the issues of justice be trusted? Mm. Uh, will I be protected by my teacher, by the police? Mm. Um, and uh, essentially, I think we can say sometimes, <laughs> but not very often. Um, yeah. Because abuse, as we're talking about it, at least for centuries, and another word for that is millennia, mm. uh, this has been a cultural secret um, where polite company do not, you do not address mm. this. We all survive. We all grow up. If it's something sad or bad happened, get over it, as Becky yeah. put words to it. So I really do think we're in the first 40, 50 years of actually culturally, not just individually and 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 more ecclesially mm. uh, of actually addressing not only the fact but actually the ramifications mm. yeah what do you what do you say or how do you encourage parents to help them make a space for their kids to mm. to share Disclose. these things mm-hmm. and not minimize even if their minimization is just out of a, I just, I don't, I don't want to talk about that. You know, what would you say? Well, uh, the first is whatever you choose not to talk about evil will. So, you know, if if you think you're doing (laughs) your children a favor, uh, you just set them up for the kingdom of darkness mm. uh, to begin the process. So, again, I, I'm sure that my next sentence can be easily dismissed by many. But there is no way to protect your children from sexual abuse. No way. Um, send them to a Christian school. I cannot tell you how many people I've worked with uh, who've been in youth groups, uh, Christian schools, um, missionaries, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So all, all I can say is you can't prepare your child to not be hit by a car. You can't prepare your child to escape living in a fallen world. But what you can do, age appropriate, of course, is you can tell the truth yes. about the nature of the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so one of the most important categories uh, isn't directly talking about sexual abuse. The issue is, do you have sufficient humility that your children trust you with difficult things that you're not going to flip out about? 
Um, so they lied. Yeah, that's a big deal. But do you make it a way bigger deal than we all lie? Good God. <laughs> um, you know, we all cheat, steal, we lust, and we're murderers. So, you know, if, if you haven't really thought about sin, then you need to really look at your own heart first. So when you flip children out by freaking out over even big things, yeah. but big compared to what? Um, <laughs> Uh, then you have to then say you are treating and training your children to know you cannot be trusted. Your anger, your withdrawal, your hurt, your own fear keeps you from being trustworthy. Mm. Uh, and so oh, I would say first and foremost, make sure that you engage the truth, mm. uh, but in, in compensate and reasonable ways. Mm. And then second, yeah, uh, you know, if you think you can wait until they're 12 or 13 to talk about sex in our culture, <laughs> yeah. oh, my gosh. The, the, uh, I just want to say nobody truly can be that mm. stupid. Now, <laughs> you can be that fearful, mm, yeah. but nobody's that stupid. So you're going to have to start talking about sexuality in some form in our world, at least by eight or nine. Well, you know, we know um, the average age of, of viewing pornography today is eight years old. It's the average oh, age of exposure. And so knowing that truth, you're right, Dan, we've, we've, we can't wait till, you know, puberty starts. We're going to have to start addressing... You know, we, in our family, we practice, we call it front door communication. And that's where, you know, you come through the front door, not the side. I mean, just, you want something, you ask for it, we'll tell you yes or no. Or you can say whatever you want and you can, we can work through it. And one of my kids came to me the other day and they said, dad, um, I, uh, I was on TikTok, which I'm like, that's the dumbest thing ever, but whatever. <laughs> um, you were on TikTok. Okay. And, and there was some kind of challenge and it had to do with, watching the first 10 minutes of this particular movie that's on Netflix. And so she said, um, I did it. And, uh, let's just say it had a lot more than what I thought. And so I said, okay, well, let me take a look at it and then we can talk about it. So a little bit later I turned it on and it was full on pornography. And so I, I'm like, my first instinct was, oh my gosh, my beautiful baby girl has seen, a full-on erect penis way before than what I think she should have seen. But then I thought, I got one or two things to do here. I can either freak out and shut her down, or mm. I can set a table and we can pull our chairs up to it and talk through it. And we did that. And I'm telling you, it was hard and it was scary. And I don't know that I did it completely right with all the right answers, <laughs> but I just kept telling myself, let her talk, let her talk mm -hmm. and just mm -hmm. listen. And I think we walked away from it winners. I really do. Wow. And, and, and that was, I mean, that was a risk, you know, because I'm a dad and I'm supposed to not let pornography in my home. Well, guess mm -hmm. what? It's on Netflix for the love of God. It's not just the internet anymore. It's on billboards. My it's in magazines. It's, it's everywhere. And so if you're a parent out there and you're try, like, you know, trying to shelter your kids, look at your heart and check your fear factor there. Because we can't parent out of fear. We have to parent out of love and grace and goodness and kindness. And that's what's going to, I believe, make better children, make better mm. adults. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Mm. And that gives them, when harm of the sort we're talking about occurs, 
it won't be assured that they will speak, but it gives them a higher probability eventually. Uh, and, you know, the research indicates that less than 20% of children who are abused actually ever tell an adult. Mm. So it is rare, uh, but you can up the odds by the nature of what you create in your home in terms of that overall trustworthiness, but also the ability to enter into hard conversations well before you get to this issue uh, and where there's a kind of mutuality versus, you know, as a parent, shutting your children down. I mean, uh, I may differ with my children uh, at at age four or age 40, but if I bring my opinion, my conviction of what's true, this is what the scriptures say, even if I'm absolutely correct, when you bring that kind of hammer, um, well, what did you expect when far harder issues come up? The old and weaponization not, of scripture. Good Lord. Yeah. And not to get trite with this phrase but or the scripture, but I mean, you do reap what you sow. Yes. It is just a harvest kingdom principle that, and we're, we are, and sometimes when we do reap, we have to eat the bitter apple too. Oh gosh, yes. You know, we just, we've got to be willing to eat the apple that we planted. It's hard. Mm-hmm. Okay. That was, um, part really, one, part one. It was really good. It was, <laughs> I'm still just kind of overwhelmed at the fact we're talking to the Islanders. They're heroes. They've been mentors from afar, and what an honor to have them on just to discuss and kind of really peel back the layers of what sexual abuse is. And I want to tell our listeners, um, this first part of this series was really to understand the context and define sexual abuse. And next week, we are going to dive into what this means in a marriage. It's a deep dive. And each of us, you know, if you are a sexual abuse survivor, you understand, like, your body knows this is tender ground, that it does impact your relationships moving forward. So I hope you'll come back. I hope that you'll just be ready to go there with the Allenders. Hey, thanks for joining the Jesus Said Love podcast. We are so glad you have chosen to awaken hope and empower change with us. We want to remind you to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and leave us a review. Yes. Because your voice matters. It's how we get this message into the world. And lastly, be sure to follow Jesus Said Love on Instagram and Facebook for up-to-date info. And visit the website at JesusSaidLove.com for how you can join the JSL fam. Until next time. Share the love.